I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Not really. Not really. <laughs> That's just been a habit for 20 months, so I, I wanted to say that one more time. This morning, we'll actually be looking at the very next book in the Bible after Romans. It's a letter Paul wrote around the same time as Romans to the church in the city of Corinth. Now, this is not going to be the start of a long series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, instead, what I want to do for the next four sermons is to bring us back to some of the most foundational truths of the New Testament, to some of the core beliefs of Richfield Bible Church. Now, why do I want to do this? Okay. The reason has to do with where we are at in the history of the church. You might not know this, but three weeks ago, we celebrated our fifth anniversary as a church. And uh, I'm not the most sentimental guy, but it's got me thinking a little bit, reflecting on the last five years. And it's led me to think about a lot of things over the last month. <clears throat> it's reminded me, for example, of the very first days of this church when we were meeting in an old elementary school cafeteria with very dangerous blue folding chairs. Uh, it's reminded me of those early Sundays <clears throat> when there were very few people attending, uh, when we were reminded week by week how little we had and how the future was entirely in God's hands. Uh, this has also brought back to my mind uh, my very first sermon series that I did at RBC. We took four sermons to focus on some of the most foundational truths in the New Testament, to try to lay down what we hoped would become the foundation and always the foundation of the church. We talked about the gospel. We talked about the church, what it is. And we talked about the mission of the church. And as I've been thinking back on these things, I've realized two things. One is that we need to come back to those kinds of things from time to time. Who are we? How did we get here? Why are we here? It's really easy to forget. And also, just practically, there are very, very few people here today who were there in those first four services five years ago. There are a few, and I'm really thankful for each one, but almost everyone here today has been added by God's grace since then. And so in light of those things, I thought it would be well worth our time to go back to those same themes and to remind us again of what we hope will always be foundational here at the church. So we're going to talk today about the gospel, the next two sermons about the church, and then the fourth one about the mission of the church. And so I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, to the letter Paul wrote <coughs> to the church in Corinth about five years after he planted the church. Now, just a few minutes ago, Vicki read the story of how and when the church in Corinth got started. The story was in Acts chapter 18. It's a story of when Paul arrived in Corinth, which is a city in Greece, and he told people there the good news about Jesus for the very first time. We won't go back to, to that text, but perhaps you can just remember. What was the response 
of the people in the city to the message of Jesus? How would you describe it? The response in the city was like it was in most places Paul went. It was mixed, right? In other words, most people did not believe what Paul had to say about Jesus. But some of them did. And they showed that they did by being baptized. And the story in Acts ends by saying that Paul ended up staying there in the city for a year and a half, just teaching the word of God to this new group of Christians living in Corinth. A new church had begun. Okay, that was a story that we read. Now, about three years after he left, or about five years after he first got there, he writes a letter back to that church in Corinth. And that letter is what we call today 1 Corinthians. And now we're, we're actually going to focus near the end, as you can see up on the screen, on the chapter 15. But I want to start near the beginning of the letter where Paul rehearses or thinks back to what it was like when he first got there. So it's kind of his own perspective on that story from the book of Acts. Okay, so look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in a weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my wisdom or my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Okay, that, that is how Paul describes his first days in the city of Corinth. He says that when he came, he made up his mind. He would not seek to impress people with wisdom or lofty speech, which was the norm for every like traveling speaker. Instead, he would simply come into the city and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, Paul even says that he came in weakness and with fear and with much trembling, perhaps because of how much he had suffered for Jesus in the cities right before this. He came to Corinth with serious fears in his heart. But he, he still spoke. And what did God do? God worked anyway, in spite of all his fears and trembling. And Paul knew that none of what God did was because of his own charisma or his own awesomeness. Instead, the very fact that God worked through his weakness and trembling was a demonstration of the power of God and of the power of the gospel to change anybody 
who would believe it. Now I want to turn to our main text for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay. Now remember, it's been about five years since he first got to the city. And he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you when I first came. And that's really the main thing that's going to happen in this text today. These verses are going to remind us of the core claims of the gospel. But before we look at that, I want you to look at, at what people do with the gospel in those verses. Okay, so Paul says that he preached the gospel to the people, but notice what the people did with it or do with it. Okay, so look at verse 1 again. and It says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the gospel or to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Okay, see, so the, the gospel is not something we just hear and then suddenly everything's okay. Now, the gospel requires a response that we do something with it. And what kind of response? What does Paul say? Because the, these people responded the right way. So what is the right response? They received the message, which is to say they welcomed the message or they embraced it. They truly believed what he said about Jesus. But notice Paul doesn't just talk about what they did when they first heard it five years ago. Paul also talks about what Christians must keep doing with the gospel. And what is that? The gospel is something Christians must continue to stand in and must keep holding on to or holding fast to. As I like to joke, we are not called believers in the New Testament. We are described as believers. Now, you might have to think about that, but the, the idea is it's the New Testament doesn't look at us and say we are people who once believed, although that's true. But Christians are believers. We have to keep believing, keep holding on to the gospel, keep standing in it, keep clinging to it. And that is just one of the reasons it's so important to regularly remind ourselves of the gospel, which is why this is the first part of our vision statement here at the church about what we are aiming to be. This is from our vision statement as a church. It says, we long to be a church that is gospel-saturated, where our members know, trust, love, live worthy of, and proclaim the gospel, and where all our meetings are filled with the gospel. Whether it is in our singing or our preaching 
or our praying or our observing of the table. We long for this church to be a place where the gospel is always central. We don't want the church as a whole or anyone in the church to ever drift away from the gospel. Or as Paul says at the end of verse 2, we don't, any, we don't want anyone to have believed in vain. Instead, we want to push each other day by day, week by week, year by year, back to the gospel, by which, Paul says, we are being saved. Okay, so, but we might say at this point, but what exactly is the gospel? Because Paul is saying a lot of stuff about the gospel, what he does with it, what other people do with it. But he hasn't really said yet what it is. So what exactly is the gospel? What would be your most concise answer to that? I think these next verses are the simplest and most direct answer to that question in the Bible. So let's look. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3. <clears throat> the heart of this text is in verses 3 to 5, but I'm going to read all the way to verse 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, again, we're going to focus in on verses 3 to 5. And in kids, this is where your coloring pages come in handy. Get four different pictures that we're going to talk about. But I I first want to just note two things from the text as a whole. First, notice that Paul begins and ends with saying that the gospel he preaches is the very same gospel all the other apostles were preaching. He wasn't preaching a different one. They all were preaching the same one. So he says in verse 3, he delivered what he had also received. Paul did not invent the gospel. He received it. And then at the end, in verse 11, he says, so whether it was I or they, like the other apostles, so we preach. And so you believed. They all were preaching the same thing from the earliest days. Second, did you notice how Paul says 
that this message is of first importance. Now, don't misunderstand me, but all the Bible is valuable. All of it is important. We love the whole thing here. But there are some things in the Bible that are of first importance. So think back to what we saw at the end of Romans. There are a lot of things that are important, but that aren't really that important. There's a lot of stuff we can disagree on, still get along, and welcome each other. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing that is of first importance. There are some things that make or break a church, some things worth fighting for. Most not, some things worth fighting for. There are some things worth suffering for. Some things are even worth dying for. The gospel is that kind of thing. It's a message of first importance. Okay, now we come back to the question, what exactly is the gospel message? Okay, so read again verses 3 to 5. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That is the heart of the Christian gospel. Okay. How many parts are there to that message? You can pay attention to the word that in, in the text. The message is that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that Christ appeared. Okay, so we could say there's four parts to it. Okay, kids, that's why there are four pictures on your coloring page. But as you look at it more closely, I think you'll realize there are actually two main parts, main claims of the Christian gospel. The first part is this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, there's a lot to think about. I want to think about that. Okay, when Paul says Christ, who is he talking about? He is talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish man who lived in the first century. We still often refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. But we should keep in mind that Christ, especially at this time, was, is not his last name. Right? The word Christ could also be translated Messiah or anointed one. It comes right out of the Old Testament. It is a title. From the earliest pages of the Bible, because we rebelled against the God who made us and because we followed God's enemy, Satan, all human beings have been in need of rescue and forgiveness. And in those same early stories in the Bible, because God loves us and is very kind, God promised to send us a rescuer, someone who could deliver us from the enslaving power of sin, death, and Satan. And as you read through the Bible, you come to find out that this rescuer would be a king from Israel. And that king would be called the Messiah or the anointed one, or as Paul says here, the Christ. 
So for Jews like Paul or anyone who had read the Old Testament, the idea that God would send the Christ was not surprising. The surprise, however, was what he was like when he got here and then what happened to him after he arrived. Paul says it very plainly. I just want to focus on the first two words. Christ died. That was a surprise. The long-awaited king arrived, but he didn't look like a king. He came not to be served. He came instead to serve. He cared for the needy. He loved little kids. He preached about the kingdom of God. He called out hypocrisy among religious elites. At the same time, he did a lot of amazing things. Healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, even raised the dead. But in the end, unexpectedly, he died. But it's not just that he died that was so shocking. It was the way that he died. He was rejected by most of his own people. He was abandoned by the people he, he invested his life in. And then just outside Jerusalem, the son of David was hung on a cross by the Romans who everybody thought he was coming to overthrow. He was publicly shamed like the worst criminal. The Christ died. Now, now you might say that, that doesn't sound like good news. And, and you're right, if that's all that Paul had said. But then you read the, first, the next three words. Christ died for our sins. And what would be terrible news starts to become gospel news. Good news. The gospel is not simply that Christ died. It's that he died for our sins. Now we have to think about that. What does that imply? If Jesus had to die for our sins, then that says something about us, that we must be sinners in need of some big thing happening for us. That is sin in the Bible, you could say is to break God's law. It's to fail to love God most, to fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. You could say it this way. It's to do what we know we should not do or or to not do what we know we should. None of us has been what God wants us to be. In fact, we haven't even been what we think we should be. We're all sinners, and in the Bible, the payment for sin is death. The kids quoted a great verse on that. The wages of sin is death. That's bad news, but this is good news. Christ died for our sins. That's gospel news. But if Jesus died... For our sins, that says something about Jesus, too. That seems to mean he didn't die for his sins. You see, everyone in human history has died or will die for his or her own sins. <clears throat> but a core claim of the gospel is that Jesus lived a truly just and perfect life, the kind of life we only dream of. And because of this, Jesus did not have to die for his sins. Instead, the good news is that this good man, this perfect man, died for our sins. Or to put it another way, that is to say that Jesus died as a substitute for us. 
He bore our penalty in his own body on that tree. He died the death we deserve to die. Whereas the prophet said, God laid on him the sins of us all. And Paul ends verse 3 by saying that this was all according to the scriptures. In other words, though almost everyone completely missed this, this is what the Old Testament said would happen to the king. Now, we don't have time to look at all the ways that the Old Testament points to that, but I could just remind you of the text we read for our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 53, which is perhaps the greatest text of all in the Old Testament on this. And I'll just remind us of one verse. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced. Do you know it? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, Paul then adds that Christ was buried. Now, this is not so much a new or second point in the gospel. This is the proof of the first point. Because Christ was buried, we're able to know what? That he really died. He did not faint. He did not fake his death. He was not replaced by Judas, which is a typical uh, answer by Muslims about what happened to Jesus. He, he really did die on a cross outside Jerusalem, and then his body was laid in a tomb. That is part A of the Christian gospel. God has come to our rescue through Jesus the Christ, who died for our sins. Now for the second part, and let me say this clearly. Without this part, there is no gospel. Without this part, there's only tragedy. Look at the text. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. Apart from Christ's death for us, There's no hope for the forgiveness of sins. But apart from the resurrection of Jesus, there's no reason to believe that his death did anything. This is the way it works. Without his death, there's no hope of forgiveness. But without his resurrection, there's no reason to think his death did anything. But when God the Father raised his son from the dead, This was God's testimony to us and all people that Jesus really is who he said he was and that Jesus really did what he said he could do. The cross was, in effect, everyone saying to Jesus, you're wrong. The resurrection is, in effect, God saying to everyone, you are wrong and Jesus is right. The resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus was innocent, that he was in the right, that we were in the wrong. The resurrection is the full vindication of everything Jesus claimed 
and it is the proof to you that he can do what he said he could do. And then Paul adds that this was according to the scriptures too. Just like we saw in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But it was also God's will to prolong his days and to make God's will prosper in his hands. And then Paul adds that Christ appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the 12 and then to many others. Now, as with the burial, this is not exactly a new point either. Instead, this is the confirmation of the last point. In other words, when you think of the burial of Jesus, that proved that he really died. And when you think of the appearances of Jesus after his death, those were to prove that he really rose. The resurrection was confirmed through many appearances to many eyewitnesses. Jesus ate with people. He let them touch him. He taught them for 40 days after his resurrection. And then, with a large group of them, he led them out to the Mount of Olives, and they saw him with their own eyes return to heaven to take his seat at the right hand of God. Believing in the resurrection is a belief with much evidence. In verse 6 in particular, Paul says specifically that many of the people who saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead were still alive at the time he wrote the letter. It's only like 25 years later. And, And Paul is more or less saying, you can still go and find the people and talk to them if you want to ask them. But the eyewitness testimony is not the only evidence of the resurrection. Another piece of evidence is what happened to the people who saw him. Seeing Jesus risen from the dead radically changed their lives. Just look at the list in the text. Consider some of the people. Think of Cephas or Peter. On the very night before Jesus was killed, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. But then, after Jesus was raised, he went specifically to Peter. He appeared to him. He restored him, forgave him, and changed him so that he would preach about Jesus faithfully until he would carry his own cross. Similar things could be said about the 12, most of whom fled rather than sticking with Jesus. In verse 7, Paul mentions James. This is James, the Lord's brother. The Bible tells us specifically that James, along with the other physical brothers or half-brothers of Jesus, did not believe in Jesus during his ministry. They saw him all those years, and they did not believe. But when Jesus rose, he appeared specifically to his brother James. And James then believed, and he became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem for many years, and then one day, James spilled his own blood for the sake of his brother. Then in verse 8, last of all, 
Paul says, Jesus appeared to me, the writer of the letter, a man who had despised and hated Jesus and his people, something Paul never got over, that he had done those things. That's why he says, I'm not even really worthy of the title, apostle. But Jesus appeared to Paul, and that changed everything. Jesus forgave him for what he had done, washed him clean, called him, and transformed him into the greatest missionary that's ever lived. I point this out to remind us all that wherever we may be, whatever we may have done, whatever baggage you may be carrying with you this morning, Jesus has the power to change your heart, to wash you clean, and to make you new. This is good news for us all. But we cannot just hear it. That is never enough in the Bible. We must receive it, embrace it, believe it. And even years later, we must keep standing in it. Keep holding on to it. Paul wrote this as a reminder about five years after he planted the church in Corinth. It's a reminder that though all of the Bible is important, not everything is of first importance. The gospel is. The gospel is what creates a church. The gospel is what defines a church from something else. And the gospel is what sustains a church. And by God's grace, we're five years in as a church. Some things have changed here at RBC from those early days in the old metal chairs. But the gospel hasn't changed. And it never will. But the reality is, we could change. The gospel will never change, but a church could change if we're not careful or if we get distracted or if we get complacent or if we start making things that are not of first importance as if they were. There is nothing more important than the gospel. And there is nothing that can hold us together other than the gospel. We're too different. We have too many problems. The only thing that gets a church to stick together is the gospel. It's what makes a church, and it's what holds it together. And so may God help us day by day, week by week, and year by year to hold it fast and to hold it forth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance just to go back to the very message of good news that you used to wake us up, to save us, to change us, help us to keep standing in the gospel, to keep holding on to it, to remind ourselves day by day and as a church, week by week, that this is our only standing. Christ died for our sins, and he has been raised from the dead. This is all we have. 
and it's all we need. Help us, Lord. I pray for those who might have heard this, who have never really understood the gospel before. I pray you would open their eyes this morning. Bring them from death to life. Bring them to faith in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.